Today's episode of the Age of Ideas podcast is brought to you by Someday Coaching and Consulting. Someday coaches and consultants provide expertise, guidance, and inspiration to help our clients discover their purpose, build world-class brands, and develop winning marketing strategies. Visit us today at SomedayConsulting.com slash pod for a free consultation. In our last episode, we discussed understanding yourself. Welcome to episode 14 of season one of the Age of Ideas podcast, Ferran Adria and Building Your Wave. I was 18 when I first started working at a restaurant. I was a dishwasher. I only got the job because I wanted to go to a visa for vacation, and washing dishes was the only job I could find. Chef Ferran Adria When I was a young man, I wanted to be a chef. Food always fascinated me. I loved to taste it. I loved to cook it. And I loved, well, before the rise of food porn, I loved to read about food, talk about food, and watch people prepare it. When other kids were watching The Price is Right on Days Home Sick from School, I watched The Frugal Gourmet, Yan Can Cook, and shows featuring Julia Child, TV's Cooking Matriarch. Combine this passion with an over-encouraging mother and an Italian grandmother who made a mean Sunday gravy, and you have all the makings of a future chef. I followed my passion diligently, even at a young age, constantly experimenting and honing my craft. Then opportunity knocked. Close friends of my mother were friendly with Wolfgang Puck. Thank you, Ron and Nancy and encouraged me to write to him to apply for a culinary stage my junior year of high school. I followed her advice, and a few months later, during summer break, I headed to Los Angeles to work in the kitchen at Wolfgang's original restaurant, Spago, on the Sunset Strip. After a couple of bumps in the road, including not knowing that chefs brought their own knives to work, I hit my stride and began the daily grind that is working in a professional kitchen. The backbone of modern kitchens is formed by emigrants, many illegal, who are highly skilled cooks but willing to work for the wages that give restaurants the possibility of making a profit, and young culinary students willing to work for next to nothing to learn their craft. I spent months chopping fruits, vegetables, herbs, and spices, occasionally worked on meats or fish, and when I was lucky, got to prepare a staff meal. The experience was magical. I still remember the smells, the tastes, and even the first time I ever got drunk with the staff and spent the next morning in the bathroom throwing up when I wasn't chopping jalapenos while the staff cheered me on. I rubbed my bloodshot eyes with the same hands I used to chop the jalapenos. And let's just say it was a painful mistake I never made again. After a couple of months, just as I was getting the hang of it, I had to leave. School was starting. I had a girlfriend back in New York, and it was my senior year of high school. I remember returning and being really stoked about cooking, but I was also no longer in the kitchen. While Wolfgang wrote me a college recommendation and I got accepted to Cornell, I also got back into the regular life of a teenager. And the further I drifted from the energy of that kitchen, the more I convinced myself I would be wasting my talents as a chef. Why should I be a manual laborer when I could use my Ivy League degree to become a wealthy businessman? 
Most chefs made an hourly wage, and I would probably have to spend many years struggling. So I abandoned my dream and pursued the business side of hospitality. While the decision worked out well for me professionally, I can say without question that not pursuing a career in the kitchen is a decision I continue to regret. While in general, I don't believe in regret, I keep it alive in my consciousness in this case as a reminder that I made a decision for the wrong reasons. I wasn't willing to sacrifice my short-term comfort to pursue the purest form of my purpose. I didn't recognize or accept that I couldn't start at the top. My ego got in the way, as it does for many of us. If Mark Zuckerberg can start Facebook and be the CEO, isn't anything less a failure? After all, that's what the media sells us. We've discussed the error in this kind of thinking, but at the time, I was blissfully unaware of it, and it cost me. Maybe not financially, but in many other ways. Ferran Adria Hailed as a genius and a prophet by fellow chefs, worshipped, if often misunderstood by critics and lay diners alike, imitated and paid homage to in restaurant kitchens all over the world, Ferran Adria is easily the most influential, serious chef of the late 20th and early 21st centuries. Quite simply, he changed the game. Colum Andrews, Food Critic It wasn't always that way. Fernando Adria Acosta, a.k.a. Ferran Adria, was born on May 14, 1962, in a crowded, demographically diverse area southwest of Barcelona. His father, Hines, was a painter and plasterer, and his mother, Josefa, a housewife. He did well in his studies, but was also a regular at the local discos. Ferran more or less lived for Thursday nights, there was no school on Fridays, so that was when the long weekend would begin. After three years of upper school, he dropped out. If you asked me why, he says, I couldn't tell you. It was just a decision I made one day. Ferran didn't leave school with a plan. He wanted to play as much soccer as possible and make some money so he could go to a visa in the summer. Ferran's father had an old friend named Miguel Moy who was the chef at the Hotel Playafels, a seaside resort. As Hines tells it, Miguel and I went to a bar to have a beer one day, and I said to him, My son has quit school and needs to find a job. Maybe he would like to work at your hotel. Miguel mentioned kitchen work. Hines replied, Miguel, I have to warn you, Fernando doesn't know anything about cooking at all. Just then, Ferran arrived. His father explained that Miguel had agreed to hire him. With nothing else to do, Ferran said, Okay, let's go. On Sunday, June 15, 1980, my first birthday as it happens, Ferran started work in the kitchen. At this point, he had to make a decision, soccer or cooking. They wanted me to work on Sundays, and Sunday was the day we played soccer, so I had to choose between the job and the playing field said Ferran. Before deciding, he went to his soccer coach to ask for a realistic analysis of his skills. The coach told him the third division was probably the best he could hope for. So Ferran decided to put his energy toward his new job. He started as a fregador, 
basically a dishwasher, and he did that for about three months. Eventually, Miguel Moy, a good classically trained Spanish chef, let him help with the cooking. Moy's Bible was El Practico, a collection of 6,500 recipes from Spain, France, and elsewhere, written in 1895 by two Argentinian chefs. He gave a copy to Ferran, and for the next nine months, Ferran spent his mornings studying El Practico, his days in the kitchen and his evenings in the discos. Under Moy, Ferran remembers, we could be up until 8 a.m. partying, but an hour later, we had to be in and shape up to work normally and seriously. The rule was to arrive on time and stay right till the end. One day, Moy called Hines and said, Please take your son back, because now this boy knows more than me. Having saved some money, Ferran headed to Evisa, then ended up back in a kitchen at a resort hotel. He spent four months cooking, partying, and lounging on the beach before heading home. In Barcelona and environs, he did brief culinary stages in multiple places, including a tapas bar inside a bingo parlor, a conference and party venue in a 14th century villa, Martinica, where Ferran had what he calls his first contact with modern cooking, and Finisteri, an elegant old-style restaurant then considered to be among Barcelona's best. In 1982, Ferran was drafted into Spain's military and posted to a naval base in Cartagena, Colombia. He volunteered for culinary service and spent a month in the barracks kitchen, preparing massive quantities of simple food for the sailors. During his time there, he was scouted by the head butler for the household of the base commander, Admiral Angel Libera Lucini. Lucini liked good food and the butler was his talent scout. After a few culinary tests such as making mayonnaise, paella, and vichyssoise, Ferran was ranked bien and asked to join the admiral's kitchen. Although he expected it to be a cushy posting, he quickly realized he not only had to think up new menus every day for the admiral's family, but also to conceive and execute serious banquets for visiting dignitaries. It was here, alongside its close friend and future collaborator, Fermi Pooch, that Ferran began experimenting with new techniques. Pooch came armed with an arsenal of books on haute cuisine, and they used them to prepare meals for the admiral and his guests. They prepared everything from salmon terrine with green peppercorns and rich aspic to lupon croute, legendary chef Paul Boscus's preparation of bass and a pastry shell. The work would eventually result in Ferran's first book, El Sabor del Mediterrano, a combination of the recipes used for the banquets and some daydreams Ferran never even prepared. When it came time for Ferran to take his summer leave from the Navy, Pooch convinced him to do a stage at the Spanish restaurant he worked in prior to the military, El Bulli. Ferran initially had no interest in spending his vacation in the kitchen, but the combination of two Michelin stars and a beautiful beach eventually got him to relent. Ferran traveled to Coastal Rosés and spent a month under Chef Jean-Paul Vinet, immersed in haute cuisine. After three weeks, remembers Pooch, the manager called to say, Hey, Fermi, no offense, but that guy you sent, Fernando, he's much better than you. At the end of 1983, 
Ferran finished his military service. He spent a few months working in Seville before reuniting with Pooch to begin work full-time at El Bouilly. When Ferran joined the staff, Juli Soule, the manager, encouraged him to travel to expose himself to fresh ideas and cultures. Ferran toured some of France's top kitchens, learning various techniques from culinary greats. He eventually took over as head chef, and at the beginning of 1987, he went to the Côte d'Azur. In Nice, he stayed in the Negresco, whose restaurant, the Chanticleer, was run by famed chef Jacques Maximin. He attended a culinary demonstration by Maximin, and during the discussion that followed, the chef was asked what creativity was. Maximin replied, Creativity means not copying. This simple sentence brought about a crucial change in Ferran's cooking, the cutoff point between his recreation of others' dishes and a firm decision to become deeply involved in his own creativity. Upon returning to El Bouilly, Ferran, then 25, was convinced he needed to use cookbooks less and less and try to find an identity of his own. He gradually began to experiment with new techniques for preparing and presenting food, and by 1994, four years after becoming co-owner of the restaurant, he had moved away from classic approaches altogether. He had become an experienced creative. He replaced conventionality with his own creation, technique concept cuisine, today often referred to as molecular gastronomy in which he subjected potential ingredients to rigorous experimentation and scientific analysis as a means of creating novel dishes that produced unexpected sensations. The most famous example was his use of spherification, which delicately encapsulates liquids within spheres of gelatin. One of the best-known examples are his liquid olives, which resemble solid green olives but burst in the mouth with olive juice. Almost 20 years after arriving at El Bouilly and following tens of thousands of kitchen hours, Ferran Adria was widely regarded as the world's most creative, if not in fact the premier living chef. In 2002, El Bouilly was named the best restaurant in the world and went on to receive the honor five times before closing in 2011 to become fittingly a creativity research center. Ferran is hailed as the Salvador Dali of the kitchen, and his work has been thoroughly documented in more than 30 books, exhibited in museums, and copied, with both good and bad results, all over the globe. But Ferran's unbelievable achievement didn't come easy. He built his wave of success meticulously over decades through a combination of patience, struggle, experimentation, self-awareness, team-building, and silent struggle in a remote restaurant with few customers and limited resources early on. Every success, every experiment, every hour of thought, every piece of advice, every decision he made compounded on the next, eventually creating a self-sustaining energy, a wave that over time carried him to a peak. Your pursuit is no different. Your wave. Good and evil both increase at compound interest. That is why the little decisions you and I make every day are of such infinite importance. 
The smallest good act today is the capture of a strategic point from which a few months later you may be able to go on to victories you never dreamed of. C.S. Lewis Have you ever sat on the beach and watched the waves? If you have, you will have noticed they start small, build up slowly, peak, and then break as they crash into the shore. The best surfers are able to spot the wave as it's building, set themselves up, enjoy an amazing ride, and seamlessly move on to the next without wiping out. Creating is no different. All our waves, our journeys, start small, build up slowly, and over time, reach a peak. Every decision we make, big and small, all the work we do, compounds to make us who we become. Your wave, your ability to flawlessly execute, is the compounding effect of combining good decisions with great execution, repetitively. The more focused we are in our pursuit, the better the decisions we make. The harder we work, the more likely our wave will be significant. The more energy it will have, the more interesting life becomes. Your wave equals good decisions plus great execution. Every part of Ferran's process, the building of his wave, brought him closer to manifesting a reflection of his true self. And when he achieved that reflection, his ability to flawlessly execute emerged. But it took years. Also note what his former student and friend, Jose Andres, observed. This guy is at the top of the top. Usually when people are at the top of their game, it's at that moment in life when you are willing to give everything you have. Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, it's great. But one of the things that has made this man unique, and I think sometimes it's a story the press has not been able to tell, is that 25 years ago, when only maybe a few of us knew him, he was also a giver. And to give everything when you have nothing, that's even more amazing. Once you have the knowledge of how to unlock your creative potential, your ability to manifest that potential to flawlessly execute starts small. In the beginning, you're learning, marshalling your resources, forming a point of view, meeting collaborators. At that point, you only have the ability to manifest small waves. While you may have big desire, your skills and resources have yet to catch up, so it would be ill-advised for you to take on a project too large. But these simple, focused projects are critical to your long-term success. Everything you're learning will be part of the bigger waves you'll build later in your journey. Once you carry out your first small project, you should analyze the outcome and then do another, focusing on improving each time. When you do this over and over again, you'll eventually see your first wave begin to form. Maybe people at work are talking about how hard you work or how well you manage the front desk at the hotel or that one of your dishes got on the menu. It may or may not be the wave you thought it was. Maybe an opportunity opens up that wasn't really what you thought you wanted. But that's not important. All that matters is that you're making waves. You're progressing toward your first peak. These peaks are the moments where you're doing the best work you can on this wave. For example, I started out in food and beverage. I've mentioned that eventually I came to oversee a $150 million food and beverage business on multiple continents. It was a fantastic wave. 
but I knew if I wanted to achieve my long-term goals, I had to get off that wave and start the learning that would build my next wave. Now, for some of us, waves can last decades, even a lifetime. It really all depends on what challenges present themselves and what you desire. The more focused and skilled you become, the bigger your waves will grow. And then your waves will merge with waves from the surrounding energy of the world and take you on some amazing rides. Ferran's first wave was in Miguel Moy's kitchen. The global press didn't care, but he impressed Miguel, and that was all that mattered. As his skills grew, so did his ability to make waves. His next wave was in the military kitchen. There, his wave was a little bigger and touched more people, each time helping Ferran become a better surfer. His subsequent wave was in El Bouilly. That one took over a decade to reach its peak. He needed intense focus, greater skills, and more self-examination to get him closer to his potential. The wave peaked when it merged with two external waves that carried him to new heights. The rise of nouveau Spanish cuisine on the global stage and the rise of global foodie culture. And finally, that wave peaked after two decades in the kitchen, and like a skilled surfer, he saw it breaking and seamlessly moved on to the next stage of his journey. Too often, people are looking for shortcuts, ways to get to the peak without doing the work. But it's impossible to surf without being able to paddle into the wave, being able to recognize it and have the strength to pull yourself into it and up. Shortcuts are a bullshit way of avoiding the necessary work, and more to the point, they rarely bring sustained success. While you can be strategic in your approach, you shouldn't try to get up on every wave. There's no way to avoid putting in the necessary energy it takes to do great work. Remember, ideas are just ripples. Waves manifest when energy is added to the equation and you flawlessly execute your ideas. The Age of Ideas is written and produced by Alan Phillips, with voiceover provided by David A. Wood. To hear more about Alan's ideas and people he digs, check out theageofideas.com slash pod or visit Instagram at Age of Ideas. See you next time. And never forget, life is too short not to live your truth. Your truth.